Thank you for having me to talk today. Um, this is, um, was intended to be a talk about how to connect to people, um, because I was thinking that was going to be useful for everyone around the holidays. Everyone will be sitting next to someone this holiday, <laughs> wondering whether there's a possibility to connect. Um, and also because we're going to do our first Fuhatsu, and I kind of think of that as a chance to connect together. Um, I'm probably the least qualified person in the room to talk about connections, um, but some of the Meta Sutta and some of the Tibetan practices on this have been something I've been interested in for a while. So I'm going to give it a shot and venture into some of these ideas as we think about holidays. But I'd really like to understand your thoughts too. As I got into this talk, it became clear that it was a talk about loss in addition to connection and connecting to others despite loss. The loss created for me what I think is a more productive bit of practice on this subject than it was when I was just trying to think about only the positive and only what to do in the future. So let's start with a little structure. Why is it necessary to connect to people? Because we're always changing, because um, we're always experiencing some loss. Maybe not as much as I have recently, as I'll tell you a little bit about in a second. But connections that once were may not be next year when you go back. Someone might be older. Someone might not be there when you go back. One cannot hold the warmth of a connection any more than you can hold on to a material bit of wealth. It must be renewed or created. Good things do not always stay good. Dogen says in the Genja Khan, and this quote truly bewildered me um, when I first read it, firewood becomes ash. Ash cannot turn back into firewood again. Although there is before and after, past and future, both are cut off. Ash stays in the position of ash and has its own before and after. But practice is not grim. Our lives are not endless strings of loss. What is there to turn to following loss that creates without glossing over the very real loss? It's too easy to run towards new activities. I bought a midlife crisis bike. I'm considering putting red flames on it. Um, <laughs> don't worry, I've got all the accessories already, even though I've only read it three times. I've ridden it three times. <laughs> It's very easy when faced with loss to replace what was real with what is not real. And there's always sitting with the emotions. Nothing replaces that. But when one looks for vibrancy in our practice, connection arises repeatedly and clearly. Communities with common interests seem to generate them of their own accord. I think in part through some of the ways I'll try to talk about in this talk, just by working side to side. So why do I care? Um, I care about this process because, uh, in part, I've lost two very close friends of mine recently. One was my dad. When I grew up, he gave me the best off-color grade school jokes ever. <laughs> he helped me in, in, engage in history and envision nights in action. He had actual jokes about Byzantium. He had a funny story about Empress Theodora. He was an odd guy. 
He also taught me how to write, throw a baseball, tie my shoes, listen to Johnny Cash, order a drink, defend myself with words, not anything physical. But I had trouble getting close to my dad, because frankly we didn't see eye to eye in a lot of important ways. When I went to my dad's Asian history section in his library, yes, he had a section for different things. I found a fully footnoted cultural annotation of the importance of the Buddhist myth in the West done by a non-Buddhist scholar. It was too hard. I, I, I consider myself, I read for a living, and I, I couldn't figure out what my dad was reading on the subject I know some, more than some things. The other person is the person who taught me mindfulness and giving, starting with how to eat pizza and baked goods something I've dutifully resisted one croissant at a time. Engaged my first self-reflection, encouraged my first trip to a therapist, and had a question whether I needed to defend myself with words. I remember them looking at a picture of the pyramids and saying, did someone really make people build that? That seems terrible. They were full of kindness, even for those unpictured thousands many years ago. My friend taught me what I know of kindness, both, at times in my life, uh, both of them were at times were sincere and wonderful friends. Their loss will change the content of my life in a very meaningful way. With that, where you can still hear the voice on some subjects, I can still close my eyes and hear what they might have said. While not gone, my friend is moving away, and so there's a period of loss. I'm going to tell two stories about trying to connect with these people and what I take from those experiences. My friend loved mindfulness. But after encouraging me to learn about it, we were different flavors of lollipops. <laughs> the book Why Buddhism Was True was on my shelf, providing insight into the neurobiology of meditation long before I thought it was worth reading. That was sort of interested me. But despite the fact that I had been practicing here um, for several years, I could never read their favorite book on mindfulness. Wait for it. It was Bunny Buddhism. A book where all the words for Buddha are changed to bunny. Bunniness is Buddha nature, etc. They loved the book. They quote the book. They joke about it. But I didn't want to read it. It felt like it was made of something, fun of something I cared about. It was the equivalent of the way I felt about Legally Blonde when I was in law school. I just couldn't do it. Which, by the way, is pretty funny. And it's about a little dog and a, and a very blonde girl go to law school. Um, and I kind of like that now. I mean, Buddhism is serious. We talk about dusty mirrors and dragons and ancient halls. I also thought Bunny Buddha was an attempt to take the way we practice, the way practice takes care of us, and divorce it from any sense of practice. Mental health is part of practice, but it's not all practice. And I felt like they were trying to take away everything else. So I resisted that for a number of years. I must have spent more time in the last three years avoiding reading Bunny Buddhism, which turned out to be 60 pages with like 60 words a page. It took me no time to read. Um, this, and I read it not expecting to like it, but because I wanted to connect to part of a friend that I was grateful for. So here are my two most su successful attempts to connect and what I learned from them. The bunny hop of connection, however small. <clears throat> Crystal Lester, the author, says, we are all bunnies in the vast field of clover. 
I think that's essentially the leap to connection. It's the belief you can connect if there's commonality. That we all have a Buddha nature. A connection is a sharing of that nature. She also says, bunniness never decreases by being shared. That your personal perspective is not your only perspective. It took me a, it took me a long time to bridge the gap between my books, which have some footnotes, but not as many as my father's, and this book. Because, of course, there's a difference between the books I like and the books my dad likes and the books my friend likes. And then I went to Dogen, and he said, imagine you're a rock. Imagine what the world of a rock looks like, and how you would be an insentient being, and what their world would look like. And gee, that's a little bit further of a stretch than the medium amount for most of the millennials. He says their dharma of insentient beings is an intrinsic in nature. So I take from this that stretching is a good thing. So what did I learned when I read Bunny Buddhism? It's truer than you'd expect. It was fun. It was actually kind of funny. Um, it was written by an author that had read more than she lets on. About half of everything was a direct quote with bunniness substituting. <laughs> um, the author of Bunny Buddhism turns out to be a suicide survivor who I think pretty honorably wants to make it accessible to people who are in trouble. Um, it seemed like an impossible gulf. But I think there's a little of that when we say that though the myriad beings are numberless, you've got to save them. It's not really about whether you get there, it's sort of about whether you try. The next one is um, a little bit about memory. I don't tell many of my dad's jokes anymore. But they most really wouldn't fit in in Zendo. Um, but they were great for a little kid who was awkward making friends with other 13-year-old boys. Are these jokes worthless now because they don't really have the right values for me? Um, in the position of a 13-year-old boy, they remain something I'm really, really grateful for. Um, ash has its own before and after. Although cut off from fire, the fire is still there. Ash can be warmed from the past of the fire. The memory is warm. The connection through time is warm. We spend so many days on our cushion maximizing what we are now. But I don't think that we are entirely separate from our past. Our past becomes some part of us in the now. I'm reminded that in Thich Nhat Hanh's, um, daily prayer, he says, um, that you see, I see my father and mother, whose blood, flesh, and vitality are circling in my own veins and nourishing every cell in me. Though through them I see my grandparents. I open my heart, flesh, and bones to receive the insight and love and experience permitted to me by my ancestors. I know that parents always love and support their children and grandchildren, although they are not always able to express it skillfully because of difficulties they encounter. He says that every day, and I bet some people in that practice also did not have easy relationships at every moment. Notice he does not say that every action was one that we agree with. I know that parents love and support their children and grandchildren, uh, although they're not always to express it skillfully because of the difficulties they encounter. I think difficulties may be karmic or practical, or big and large, or small and little. But there's a point in the gratitude we express to our connected places and teachers, and some of those are our parents. 
Finally, the energy of presence. Dainan Katagiri says that the book, uh, the Dogen looked at moments differently. That if we wanted to say something about a moment, he'd say that it was arising. It's hard to know what arising really means. It sounds good, but it's very particular language. I think this is part of what firewood becomes ash. Ash cannot turn back into firewood again, they mean. Although there was before and after, past and future, ash stays in the position of ash as its own before and after. In Japanese, the word for arising could be key, kind of energy. There were plenty of moments in my father's passing where there was disconnection, confusion, and other issues. But on the best day, I was sitting in the wheelchair while he was in his chair. I was holding the hand, which had become small and a little, while mine had become inappropriately big and warm. A reversal of what I thought. And we agreed, we really did. We sat down together and we agreed for sure that Galadriel was the best elf in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and he gripped my hand tightly. I later learned he wasn't really paying attention to what was on the TV and had just been kind of agreeing with me. But I could feel some of that energy arising in his hand, being there with him, being there through, through that hand. There was a tension to that moment arising, and we said thank you. I think this is something we feel when we chant, when we're listening with our ears and hearing combined things that are our own voice. I think the key can be felt when your palm touches someone's palm, when you're fully paying attention to another person and you feel a little bit of what they feel. I always think it's super easy to do your to-do list partially and get none of that whatsoever. The opportunity of bunniness is present every time I meet another bunny, says Krista. But you have to be there and show up. So this is easier for once to understand in Dogen's words for me. And this is the piece I'd like to leave people with for Aramatsu. In regulations for the auxiliary cloud hall, Dogen's advice for monks coming into a collective retreat has a couple different features. One of them is don't come in drunk. <laughs> but this one was more useful. It says the assembly of students should blend like milk and water to support the activities of the way. He later points out you shouldn't use oil, lacquer, or wine because they don't mix. Intermix. Lose your boundaries for a second. Become inseparable like milk and water in the hall. Stretch. When we chant, we listen, and there is no separable voice. It is a practice to participate. So I'm genuinely excited to connect with you during the Rahatsu and otherwise. I mean that sincerely, and I really appreciate your time.